New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the lives of three early pioneers in the consciousness movement. Gerald Hurd, the philosopher, Aldous Huxley, a great writer, and Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. My guest is Don Latin. He is the author of many books, including Shopping for Faith, American Religion in the New Millennium, Jesus Freaks, a true story of murder and madness on the evangelical edge, Following Our Bliss, How the Spiritual Ideals of the Sixties Shape Our Lives Today, The Harvard Psychedelic Club, How Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil Killed the Fifties and Ushered in a New Age for America. Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments, and the New Psychotherapy, and the book we'll be focusing on today is called Distilled Spirits, Getting High Then Sober, with a famous writer, a forgotten philosopher, and a hopeless drunk. Don lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Don. It's a pleasure to have you with me on New Thinking Aloud. Great. It's great to be with you, Jeff. You know, I know we have a number of things in common. We were both students at Berkeley in the 1970s and lived in the San Francisco Bay Area where you still live. I I lived there for 30 years. Yeah, no, I remember when you had that wonderful show on KPFA and uh, other other platforms, I think, later on. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we have uh, shared a common experience of the 1960s, but I, I think what's really exciting about your book, Distilled Spirits, is you're looking at the predecessors, the antecedents to the whole consciousness psychedelic movement, and it's hard to think of a better figure to focus on than Aldous Huxley and his friends. Yes, yes. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because th- this book came about after I wrote a book about another a, another group biography based on four guys in the 1960s who really helped define the 1960s, or Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, uh, Houston Smith, and Andy Weil. And so what I I really like that group biography form, so I wanted to take the story back to more of a foundational period for that and write about uh, three characters from the 1950s, including including Huxley. Yeah. When I was a high school student uh, in the 60s, uh, Aldous Huxley's novel, Brave New World, was like the thing to read. And then he wrote a, an essay, Brave New World Revisited, in, in which he amplified on those ideas. But I'm guessing that today, a lot of our viewers may not realize what a key cultural figure Aldous Huxley was. He was, and long before the 1950s or 60s even. I mean, he was real well-known. He was probably one of the best-known writers in the English language in the 1930s, which is when Brave New World came out, and in the, into the 1940s, and and even earlier. I mean, his early work is from the from the 20, 1920s or beforehand, you know. 
He was his, his grandfather was Thomas Henry Huxley, who was a famous uh, uh, evolutionary thinker. Uh, they called him Darwin's bulldog for his defense of evolution. And you go back and look at the early stories written about uh, Aldous Huxley, and they always mention he's the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley because no one ever heard of <laughs> Aldous Huxley yet. But uh, uh, yeah, he was a towering figure, uh, especially between the between the wars, between World War One, World War Two, and then afterwards. Yeah. I'm under the impression from your book that uh, he came of age uh, in the late 20s, early 30s, sort of the jazz age, and which was similar in some ways to the 1960s in terms of sexual mores, for example. Yeah, yeah, the roaring 20s and <laughs> and all of that. Yeah, he was born in, uh, I think it was, if I'm correctly, 1895. Uh, uh, I think Queen Victoria was still on the... <laughs> throne that's how far back he goes so yeah he was reacting like a lot of people in his generation reacting to the sort of the victorian era being in decline and and also uh you know after world war one all the alienation that produced by world war one and kind of the hopelessness and you know, so lost generation they call them and they're looking for another way and then of course the 20s were uh were a very exuberant time in many ways in in, in england and the states at least a lot like the 1960s yeah, we seem to go in cycles, don't we? <laughs> so, so he's really, I think, uh, the main character in the story. But Gerald Hurd is also very important as a, a philosophical figure and uh, an anthropologist and uh, a, a public intellectual. Uh, one reason I wrote the book was people have completely forgotten about Gerald Hurd. <laughs> Uh, H-E-A-R-D. People haven't heard of Gerald Hurd. Um, but he was also a very uh, important figure between the wars. And what's interesting about Hurd and Huxley is they became friends in the 1920s. And, um, you know, Huxley was uh, a real uh, skeptic, maybe even a cynic, uh, social satirist, uh, had a real edge in his early writings, novels and essays. And it was Gerald Hurd who kind of got him interested in spirituality and philosophy and religion, uh, to the dismay of many Huxley fans, actually. Uh, and uh, so he, they were, they were kind of co-mentors. They influenced each other in a lot of interesting ways, and they became friends. They met in the 1920s, and they both came to the U.S. together uh, in 1937 uh, on a speaking tour. Actually, it was a pacifist pacifism speaking tour. Uh, they were both involved with the pacifist movement in England, um, which was not always a popular thing to be as the war machine was revving up, you know, in Europe uh, in the late 1930s. Um, so, um, but yeah, they, they came over together and they didn't in intend to stay. They were, it was a, it was a lecture tour. Um, they were already both, you know, well known and they wound up living the rest of their lives in the United States, mostly in, in Los Angeles area. Huxley was married. They came on that trip with his uh, first wife, Maria, and uh, Gerald Hurd was gay. Uh, he had a, a lover who joined him eventually in Los Angeles, but uh, he came by himself with the Huxleys and their son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was gay and, of course, in the closet at the time. And, uh, you know, a lot of gay people see uh, Hurd. I mean, Hurd, Hurd's known for a lot of different reasons. I mean, gay people see him as one of the kind of uh, early gay writers, um, even though he wasn't specifically writing about that. But he had a certain sensibility, I guess. 
And, uh, you know, he's also uh, popular among science fiction fans because he wrote some science fiction. Uh, and he, he really got interested in the whole UFO thing and later in the 50s and psychic phenomenon. So Gerald Hurd was a real polymath. He was all over the place, interested in all kinds of things, as was Huxley. Uh, they, they, ne- not, ne- neither of them wanted to become like a, a specialist or be labeled or... Uh, there's a woman who wrote the, the the real biography about Gerald Hurd, and the title was Beyond the Pigeonholes, meaning you can't like put him in one hole, right? Uh, he was uh, he had a much broader interest. I was actually first acquainted with Gerald Hurd in 1975 when I attended a workshop with Jean Houston, who you cite in your book, who knew him, and uh, she called the workshop Dramanon. Uh, which was uh, based on the the Dramanon is is the maze in the cathedral at Chartres, and uh, she based that on a Gerald Hurd uh, short story about entering into an altered state of consciousness while walking the maze. Oh, interesting! Interesting. Was that the the labyrinth? The labyrinth, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That that whole movement became very popular. There's there's labyrinths everywhere these days. <laughs> and and that goes back to Gerald Hurd's story. There you go. Another way that he was. You know, I first heard of Gerald Hurd. I think in the '80s, if I remember correctly, uh, it was as Michael Murphy who founded along with Dick Price Esalen Institute in the 1960s and they got the idea for Esalen partly from Gerald Hurd who had a a similar but different kind of a retreat center down in Southern California in the 1940s called Trabuco College. Um, so that's when I first heard about Hurd and then his name kept popping up, you know, <laughs> uh, Houston Smith, uh, the scholar of world religions who I Profile. Well, I knew Houston because I was a reporter in San Francisco covering religion for for many years, and so I knew Houston. We both lived in Berkeley, and um, and he would tell me about Gerald Hurd and how influential Gerald Hurd was in his life, and how he met Huxley through Hurd. So there was that, uh, and then at some point along the my my own personal life journey, I got involved in twelve uh, step movement, Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bill W., one of the co-founders of, of AA, turns out that he knew Gerald Hurd. <laughs> so uh, that, that's one one reason I've always been kind of interested. I didn't really know a lot about him, but I, his name kept popping up in all these different contexts. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, Bill Wilson. He, as you point out, was a notorious drunk. I think that's the phrase right. you use in the subtitle of the, of the book. But he managed uh, to cure himself, at least partially. He certainly cured himself of his of drinking. Yeah, yeah. No, he was a he was a businessman, a Wall Street type uh, in the twenties. You know, during the the, the Roaring Twenties, the boom to economic boom time of the twenties, and uh, I, you know, alcoholic, heavy drinker, and his life collapsed. Uh, Around that, as it often does for hardcore alcoholics, uh, during the, during the Great Depression, and he had four stays at a kind of a high end. They didn't call them rehab centers now, but it was a hospital that specialized in alcoholics, including a lot of uh, businessmen, and they were mostly men, of course, then um, uh, who were affected by the depression and uh, their drinking. Maybe a maybe a bottomed out around the 
partly because of what was going ha happening in you know the economy at the time. Anyway, uh, Bill had four stays at this hospital. That shows how difficult a case he was. And uh, during the last stay uh, in the early 30s, he um, he had what you could really call kind of a spiritual awakening, kind of a revelation after hitting bottom. And it was this vision that uh, uh, inspired him, as the story goes, to start uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, from the depths of his despair there. And he had been, like many people at the time, were interested in, in philosophy and religion, spirituality, had been a reader of Gerald Hurd. He had read some of Gerald Hurd's books in the 30s. Uh, so he, that's how he first heard about Hurd, and then they later met in the, in the 1940s and became cl uh, good friends and had some interesting adventures later in the 1950s. I gather that uh, from your book that possibly one of the reasons he had this spiritual awakening in the hospital is that they were using belladonna as a uh, treatment for alcoholics. Yeah, that's a bit controversial, that whole idea, especially within AA. <laughs> um, I, I think my, my take on it is, so they had a potion, a kind of a purgative, I think you could maybe call it, that they used, which had all kinds of things in it. Uh, but the ingredients were, uh, some among the ingredients were belladonna and another herb called henbane, both of which can have, uh, both of which can be actually deadly poisons and can also at the right dose be uh, uh, psychoactive effects, can lead to uh, visions, hallucinations, um, there's a history of this being, some of this being used in so-called witchcraft, you know. So there's an interesting history with henbane and belladonna. And uh, yeah, so it was part of, only part of this cure. Uh, and what's, so he had this this vision, this uh, on, but you know, I think a lot of things were going on with Bill. It wasn't just that simple. I mean, A, he was hitting bottom as an alcoholic and he'd stopped drinking. And you know, hardcore alcoholics, when they stop, just the process of stopping drinking, you get the DTs and you can actually have hallucinations just by stopping drinking, right? So uh, there's that. And he also, there's a there's an interesting little his, part of his history where he had a grandfather who was a notorious drunk uh, in the 19th century and got sober kind of during the early temperance movement and told Bill about this vision he had on a mountaintop and how he went to the congregational church and, and, and you know, uh, basically devoted his life to sobriety. So he also had this story from his grandfather. So I think you have to mix all this together to see what was really at the root cause of this spiritual awakening that Bill had. It wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just the belladonna, for sure. And, you know, a lot of people will, will a lot of people have trouble with uh, people who have a spiritual awakening or revelation with drugs of any kind that's not real, right? Because it's artificially somehow, you know, induced. But I, I think the bottom line, and this is something Houston Smith used to say, that when it comes to religious experience, it's it's not about the altered states, it's about the altered traits and what effect does this experience have on your behavior. So in Bill's case, it led him to, uh, inspired him to inspire AA and help countless people get sober over the years. So that's how I judge it. So in my book, it doesn't really matter if or to what extent uh, psychoactive herbs, sacred plant medicines, as people call them now, uh, may have played in his awakening and his revelation. But um, I, I think there was, I think it played some effect, had some effect on it. As I recall, you quote Aldous Huxley, who said that 
Bill Wilson has started the, the major movement of consciousness transformation in the 20th century. Yeah, you know, I think both Hurd and Huxley were very impressed with what Wilson had done just as terms of a social movement. I mean, really, what, what, what Wilson started was much bigger than just AA or all the other 12-step groups they have now for people who have in recovery from, say, you know, narcotics, sex and love addicts, marijuana, shopping, overeaters, whatever you are. Every, we're all in recovery from something, right? And so there's – so Wilson, you know, was – was influential in all those groups starting, but not just that, the, the larger so-called small group movement, which came out of that, in a, in a lot of ways came out of AA or was modeled after AA. So this could be women's groups, men's groups, you know, even like Bible study groups. Uh, this whole idea of groups, people getting together in small groups for self-exploration. I mean, I think he he really set a model. Of course, that was always happening in some way. But I mean, I think he helped popularize the what they call now the small group movement, or or the self-help movement, or self yes, or self-help. But but specifically, it's groups of people getting together, you know, in small groups and helping each other. Yeah, self-help, right? The idea being that you don't have to have a therapist. Right, right. That that there's a wisdom in the group. And, uh, and you know, so many people, I think, are looking for community and connection. And that's uh, a big, as, that's as big a part of the spiritual search as anything else. You know, it's finding community and connection with other people. So, Well, since we're talking about pioneers, I think it's worth mentioning that one of the big influences on Bill Wilson was William James. Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, Bill Bill was a was very eclectic in his spiritual search. I mean, he didn't have much of an upbringing at all. He was abandoned by both parents. Uh, he uh, was raised basically by a grandmother, and one of his grandfathers actually was was uh, interested in the transcendentalists. He had one grandfather was the drunk, and the other one was another grandfather who was uh, he. They were from New England, right? They, he grew up in Vermont. And they were interested and studied and read the Transcendentalists, you know, Thoreau and Emerson. So he had that. Um, uh, but he was interested in, in uh, William James and also Carl Jung. Uh, and the thing that's interesting about William James is after he had this experience that night in uh, Towns Hospital, that spiritual awakening, that vision, the next day or maybe the day before he was given this book, the Varieties of Religious Experience, read by William James, which had, you know, come out um, earlier in the 20th century, you know, a couple of decades before. So as he had, after or as or after he had this experience, that's the book he was reading to try to understand what happened to him. And um, so uh, I think that book was very influential in the way that AA developed. One of the wonderful things about AA is they are very open-minded in terms of they talk about have they talk about alcoholics having a spiritual awakening to understand and overcome their addiction, um, but it's uh, through God as you understand Him is is how they put it, and you know that was in the 1930s. This was written, and and you know they so they were a bit ahead of their time in terms of being so open minded about whatever spiritual path works for you. That's fine, and I think one of the reasons that Bill was open to that. And not everyone in AA was because it came out of a evangelical Christian movement. So there's a whole other stream in AA early on. But I think, but I think it was William James and his open, open-minded approach 
to religious experience, spiritual experience. Uh, and also James was a serious student of uh, mysticism, psychic phenomenon, parapsychology. I mean, he was really the founder of American psychology. Uh, so uh, that open-mindedness, I think, you can really see what comes out of James and, and also Jung that, uh, that Bill was interested in. Well, I think it's fascinating that Bill Wilson, Gerald Hurd, and Aldous Huxley were all interested in my field of specialty, parapsychology, psychical research, going way back. In fact, as, as I recall now, when Aldous Huxley and Gerald Hurd came on that trip, a lecture tour to the United States, they went to Durham, North Carolina, because they wanted to meet with J.B. Rhine and see the parapsychology laboratory at Duke University. Right. That was one of their first stops. But yeah, they were very interested in psychic phenomena. And uh, uh, and so was Bill Wilson. I mean, late, later on when they that that's actually one another reason that Bill Wilson and the, they, they connected through that. Um, but no, that was a very big part of their uh, their 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 spiritual interest was 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 all of that. Um and you know that in some ways that's you know better than I do, but maybe that was some of that phenomenon, some of that it was more acceptable then than it is now. I don't know. What do you think? Is uh... Uh, there's something to be said that it comes and goes in waves, and the 1930s was such a wave. I think the 1960s was such a wave. I'm under the impression from your book that uh, Bill Wilson may have been engaged in holding seances. Yes, yes. Uh, they called them spook sessions, <laughs> the ghosts, you know, spooks. And uh, yeah, Bill has a, uh, or Bill and his wife Lois, who is considered, uh, you know, the founder of uh, another 12-step uh, movement around codependency. Uh, uh, they had what they called these spook sessions at their home in uh, uh, up in the Hudson Valley outside of New York City. Um, and this was something of an embarrassment for some of the other leaders in AA. Um, you know, later on, Bill would get into psychedelics, which was even more of an embarrassment or more of a problem with that. Um, but yeah, no, he he had interest in that. He had a I can't remember the details of it, uh, Jeff, but he had a Bill had a sister who had some encounters with a famous psychic at the time. Like, I can't remember the name. But anyway, uh, he was very interested in, 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 in that. And some of the early letters that uh, Heard and uh, uh, Wilson exchanged were about, you know, different psychics and research that was going on, UFO sightings later on in the 50s. They were interested in all of that, all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, I guess that, and of course, we want to talk about psychedelics, but I think uh, that in the evolution of these figures, one of the important stages they went through prior to getting involved with psychedelics was uh, Vedanta, Hindu Vedanta. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, uh, especially Huxley and Hurd. Uh, then they, I think they interested Wilson in it a bit, but, but no, Huxley and Hurd, they wound up, they were in Los Angeles, you know, and this would have been in the late thirties and 1940s. And of course, uh, Vedanta, uh, which comes out of the work of, uh, Ramakrishna, uh, the Swami back in India. And, uh, is it Vivekananda was, uh, uh, one of the early Vedanta leaders who came 
to the States, I think, in the 1890s to speak at the World Parliament of Religions. And it's really the first time a lot of Americans heard about these exotic things like, you know, uh, you know, Zen or, you know, yoga or well, these were new ideas, you know, yogis from the mysterious yogis from the East. That was that was that was new to a lot of people. So. Um, so, yeah. So in terms of when, when Huxley and Hurd came to Los Angeles, they got very involved with the Vedanta Society and the Vedanta Temple in Hollywood, which was already going. Um, but, you know, Huxley and Hurd were, especially Huxley, were so famous that their their interest in it, I think, sp spurred a lot of uh, a, a larger public interest in Vedanta for a while. Uh, they separated. They, they had some things they didn't like about the Vedanta Society. I mean, I think... Uh, well, Huxley never liked the idea of gurus at all, and Hurd was also a little hesitant to that. So I think partly they saw it as a little cultish and separated themselves from it. Christopher Isherwood, who was another character in this story, uh, another gay man who who came a Brit who came to Los Angeles. He got very and was a friend of Hurd and Huxley. He got very involved and stayed more involved with the Fedanta Society than they did, but. Um, but yeah, it was very it was influential in their understanding of uh, mysticism and spirituality and that whole idea of the this you know this uh, the Brahman this ultimate reality this so that was that was a big part of of their development they, they kind of went through that for a few years because they were really leading edge thinkers of the time. As soon as the first scientific reports started to emerge about the use of uh, the early psychedelics, mescaline, and the early work with LSD, I'm under the impression that Aldous Huxley was right on top of it and, and eager to experience it. Yeah, he was. He was. He 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 was the kind of guy that would you know sit around in his home in the Hollywood Hills reading obscure you know medical journals, scientific journals about things, as was heard. And he stumbled across some work that a, uh, a, a, a early psychedelic researcher named Humphrey Osmond was doing way up in Canada. I mean, in Saskatchewan. I mean, way up there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, was basically running a hospital treating various peoples, including alcoholics. Um, with uh, mescaline and then later LSD uh, as a to, as a therapeutic tool to help them in their understand their addiction and overcome their addiction, and uh, he was also working with schizophrenics uh, with psychedelics, which didn't work out that well, by the way. That's the but but they were writing you know they were writing scientific papers about this, uh, and they weren't the only ones. There were hundreds of papers written about psychedelics and therapy in the from the late 40s, you know, all the way into the 70s, but. Uh, but Huxley uh, stumbled across this uh, paper by Humphrey Osmond and kind of convinced Osmond to come down to Los Angeles and lead him on a mescaline <laughs> journey. You know, because Huxley had been writing about, you know, mysticism, but he wasn't a mystic. I mean, he hadn't had any personal experiences. He wasn't a meditator. Uh, he was more of a thinker than a meditator, and uh, he longed to have a mystical experience and saw this would be uh, one way to do it. So he uh, he convinced uh, Osmond to come down to Los Angeles and lead him on what became one of the most famous psychedelic journeys of the 50s and 60s, which was at Huxley's house in uh, Los Angeles in 1953. 
spring of 1953. I was in utero with, with my in my with my mother when this happened. <laughs> Something else was being born there, but uh, this idea was being born in Huxley's mind. Uh, anyway, he had this trip, which he wrote about in the book called The Doors of Perception, which came out in 54, 1954, which was the first book that a lot of people. Uh, in my generation or another earlier generation really read about psychedelics and kind of really started the interest in psychedelics, I think, in the 50s. Really the first popular book about psychedelics. Yeah, there are other, you know, there were other anthropologists who went down to South America and Mexico and there had been, you know, there had been other work, but it was the first popular, the first popular book for sure. And that phrase, the doors of perception, comes out of a uh, statement or a poem, I guess, by William Blake. Right, right. So the the there's a veil. Uh, boy, I, I can't remember the poem, but <laughs> can you? Uh, well, it has something to do with when the doors of perception are cleansed, then then we see things as they really are. Yeah, this bigger reality. And so Huxley had this idea that the brain was. And there's a more nuanced understanding now with, you know, neuropsychology and neuro all that, but th that that the brain was kind of a reducing valve and that there was a much bigger reality out there that we could experience. Um, and one of the ways to do that is mescaline or other 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 psychedelic drugs. And I mean, during his first trip on mescaline, what he kept saying was uh, one of the things he kept saying was this is how people ought to see. <laughs> Um, and, uh, uh, so yeah, that was a very influential trip and, and, and the, and the book had a big impact. And so Huxley obviously began sharing the experience with uh, his friend, Gerald Hurd, who began m turning on many of the leading intellectual and cultural figures of that era, the late forties and early 1950s. Right, right. Well, it's true. So while it was Hurd who got Huxley interested in philosophy and mysticism initially, it was really Huxley kind of took the lead with uh, psychedelics. But I think Hurd went even deeper with it in terms of becoming an enthusiast around it. And uh, and then LSD. So they first Huxley was was mescaline, but then later on LSD, which is a, a much more powerful compound, uh, was used. And yeah, Gerald Hurd kind of became. Um, Kind of the proto Timothy Leary in a way. People from the '60s, of course, remember Timothy Leary as the Pied Piper, you know, the high priest of the psychedelic counterculture. But Gerald Hurd uh, was basically doing a similar thing, different in some important ways, but was uh, turning people on uh, to the psychedelic experience. More uh, kind of opinion makers. We call them influencers now, right? Uh, their idea, Huxley and Hurd's idea, was that this. Most people couldn't handle or weren't ready for this experience, but certain sort of thought leaders in religion or business or government, uh, that they were kind of hoping that they would plant these this seed, these seeds of consciousness and they would somehow trickle down in society, I think was partly what they were thinking. Whereas later in the 60s, you had Timothy Leary, who really saw this as an issue of cognitive freedom, and every man should experience this in a much more democratic and also chaotic and maybe dangerous way of going about it. Uh, it was only, there, there was only about five years between these two periods. You know, there was, in some ways, it was the same period. And, and there was a direct connection that uh, Aldous Huxley met with Timothy Leary. 
Yeah, yeah. Aldis, uh, Aldis met with, and so did Gerald Hurd, and, and and so did Bill Wilson. They all met with, they all met or and or corresponded with Leary. Um, yeah, because Leary was uh, Leary was uh, had an appointment at Harvard, and he was doing research with psilocybin. Um, research is a bit of a misnomer. He was having some pretty wild parties. <laughs> A little bit of research was going on, but uh, from the very beginning with Leary, it was kind of a social movement was being born rather than real research. They did do a little bit of research, but um, but but yeah, they were they were uh, Huxley was at was at MIT for a while giving a lecture series invited by Houston Smith. And so that's how they all came together. Huxley happened to be in uh, the Boston area. And, uh, and and that's how the, that's how they hooked up. Well, I think it's important now to bring Bill Wilson into the story. He already a recovered alcoholic, but he saw that there might be some potential in the use of psychedelics to help recovering alcoholics who were still seeking a spiritual awakening to achieve that. I think there were. I think Bill Wilson's interest in this was threefold. Uh, I think. He saw, and and by reading Humphrey Osmond's uh, research papers, he saw that LSD could help some alcoholics, certainly not all, but some alcoholics have the spiritual awakening that's part of the 12 steps. Uh, a lot of people who get into recovery are very resistant to the religious language, the God talk in the 12 steps. And uh, I think Bill saw this as a way uh, for those kind of more difficult cases, people that you know, have issues with even the word God, right? Um, and uh, so I think that was, of course, in his case, he was already sober. So that wasn't an issue for him. He'd been sober for 30, for 20 years. But he, uh, Bill suffered from depression both before and after he got sober, uh, serious depression. And uh, he was hoping that it would help with his depression, that a psychedelic experience would help with his depression. And he was also uh, still addicted to cigarettes, which was the addiction that killed him in the end. He died of emphysema in 1971. So uh, he was hope. So that he he had that uh, that interest a, a, as well. Um, and the last of the, th the of the third of, uh, would be, I think they were all hoping that psychedelics would somehow prove that psychic experience was real. It was a way for them to scientifically prove the paranormal exists. Right. So I think there were three reasons that they were they got into this. And I gather that uh, it became part of you, almost, you could say, a, a lifestyle for them at that point. A uh, lifestyle. Well, I, I guess. Did we even use the word lifestyle? <laughs> I don't well, what know. I mean is they, they used it on multiple occasions. Yeah, it wasn't just a one-shot thing one-off thing no there were they had a there were there was a kind of a salon i would call it both in new york and in los angeles where they were in the beginning at least under doctor's supervision and in a very cautious way uh they were taking lsd and exploring it among themselves and you know some very important uh you know people in the business community spiritual community um hollywood people uh were turning on 
and you know, including uh, you know, Cary Grant. Uh, this was earlier. Well, this was not, not so much in that salon, but there was a there was a psychiatrist named Oscar Yaniger in Los Angeles who turned on a lot of Hollywood celebrities. But it was Heard who got Yaniger interested in it. So uh, the hand of Heard is there, whether he was actually you know in the room with <laughs> Cary Grant and Jack Nicholson and some of the other people who were turning on in the sixties. Um, yeah, it was a. It, there was a period where they were very interested in exploring it. Um, they were not like, especially with Bill Wilson, he was trying to keep it quiet because it was a very controversial, controversial thing within AA. You know, I think the idea, a lot of people have difficulty understanding it. So you're going to use one drug to overcome your addiction to another drug. I mean, it, it seems a little counterintuitive at first until you understand that there, the context and the intention behind taking the psychedelic, it's not, just to get high in the same way as someone gets high, you know, with alcohol. Uh, intention is everything. Well, I think one of the important theoretical underpinnings of all of this, especially with regard to addictions, is, is that the addiction, whatever the addiction is, is usually viewed as a substitute for a deeper spiritual urge. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of where Jung comes into the picture a little bit, because one of the things that there, there's a there's a famous correspondence uh, between Carl Jung and Bill Wilson about all this, because one of the early one of the early people in AA uh, who was kind of written out of the story because he relapsed. Uh, I was a guy named Roland Hazard, who was a wealthy guy from New England, who uh, went all the way to Switzerland to be treated by Jung for his alcoholism. And one of the things that Jung told Roland Hazard was that, you know, alcoholism is this misplaced search. It's a spiritual search. It's interesting, the word spirit, spiritus, is the same, use the same word for spirituality and for this, what can be a depraving poison. And so Jung thought it was this was very interesting and that um, – and then also William James had a similar idea. We were talking about William James before. He said the only cure for dipsomania, which is a sort of archaic word for alcoholism, is religiomania. So there was this idea that that it wasn't just that it wasn't like a cure, like a sort of a pharmaceutical cure as much as it was a way to see that, yes, this is a misplaced kind of uh, search that uh, uh, someone is is going on with drugs and alcohol, this quench for wholeness. Uh, in connection. So, yeah, that was very much part of the part of the mix. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, throughout the whole book, you tell your own personal story, which involves uh, both the use of psychedelics and, and the use of alcohol. I don't know which came first in your case, but uh, it, 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 they got mixed together and it became a serious problem for you. Yeah, the other reason, one of the other reasons I wrote well, that, that I was interested, especially in Bill Wilson, was because of my own uh, struggles with alcohol, and in my case, it was cocaine and alcohol, the combination of the two. Um, yeah, so so it's it's funny because the way the book came out, uh, it's a group biography of these three people, but I'm very much in the book. It's also a recovery memoir, which was not my original idea at all. Um, I actually kind of fought the idea. That was the publisher's idea. So I had proposed this book as a straight group biography. But I think in the preface, I mentioned, you know, just briefly mentioned my own uh, story. 
And then uh, it was this book was published by University of California Press, which is an academic publisher. And one of the things that they do is they send both the proposal and the final manuscript out to uh, scholars in the field to review, right? And they so they sent my proposal out, and uh, uh, you know Professor Jeffrey Kripal from Rice, who well, you probably know, right? Um, uh, he was one of the people they sent it to, and he suggested to my editor at UC Press that, you know, Don Latin should be the fourth character in this book because that's why, you know, he's, the, why are you so interested in these three guys? You know, they're my grandfather's generation. Obviously, I didn't know them, right? Uh, and I thought that was ridiculous, actually, when I first heard it. And I thought it was kind of kind of be pompous of me to like, you know, tell my story along with theirs. And, you know, uh, you know, part of it was I was a newspaper reporter for most of my career, my early part of my career. And I was a dirty word. You don't really talk about yourself. The story's not about you. Right. So it was kind of a new thing for me to put myself, especially at that level of detail into a book. But I was encouraged to do it and I tried it. And so I started weaving my own story in with the story of these three guys. And um, whether it worked or not is, uh, <laughs> I guess we can debate, but um, that's what I did. So, yeah, you, what, you wind up knowing more than you probably need to know about me when you read this book. Well, you know, one of the fascinating insights that I got out of your experience and, and the experience of these other important figures, not that you're not important, is that uh, – I guess it's the idea best expressed in Huxley's second book about psychedelics, Heaven and Hell, in which he talked about that when you open up to these super sensible realms, you can experience ecstasy, but it could just go in the other direction. Yeah, yeah, the agony and the ecstasy, and yeah. Yeah, and I write about one of the things I write about in Distilled Spirits. And also, I, the first time I wrote about it was just an afterward in my earlier book, which was Harvard Psychedelic Club, about my own experience as a, you know, as a very naive 19-year-old you know, freshman at Berkeley with, with LSD, having kind of the ecstasy followed by the agony and having a very difficult time, um, uh, basically a psychotic kind of break breakdown, um, partly from, I think, a really bad acid trip. Um, but also other things that were, that I, I look at it differently now looking back on it, but at the time it just seemed like a bad trip that didn't go away for a few months. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that was one of the, one of the agonies and ecstasies of my life. I mean, it was a very powerful and difficult experience, both the wonderful trip and the bad trip. And I write about that in both, in both books, but I definitely see that the, the, these, these, uh, compounds are a double-edged sword. <laughs> Uh, heaven and hell. And uh, that's why I really uh, always try to be a little cautious, you know, um, that people need to be very careful when they're taking psychedelic drugs. And I think right now we're entering this kind of, some people think we're entering this post-prohibition period, kind of like we did with marijuana. Uh, as se several cities and maybe states are about to decriminalize psychedelics, which politically I'm all in favor of, and I think that they should do that. But I think people have to be very cautious, especially young people who haven't really discovered who they are yet. And that was kind of the problem with my experience. I didn't really understand who I was. And then I was sort of blowing that incomplete self aware of my, I did myself away and I was really left with nothing. Uh, so 
I, I think we really need guides, experienced guides and teachers for this for this exploration. And that's one of the one of the inspiring things that's happening now. There's an underground movement of psychedelic guides, and now it's becoming above ground. There are colleges that are openly teaching. You can get a credential to be a psychedelic therapist now, at least in San Francisco <laughs> and a few other places. Uh, so uh, this stuff is coming up, and it's it's an exciting time. But it's also uh, there's a little uh, I would say a rational exuberance around this now, like there was back in the uh, like there was back in the 60s. You know that this is going to we're going to save the world with uh, psychedelics, and it didn't really turn out that way. Um, then and it probably won't now. <laughs> so uh, and that's actually what I write about in my one more most recent book is changing our minds: psychedelic sacraments and the new psychotherapy. That's that's the book where I'm writing about sort of the history, but also what's happening now and what we can expect in the future with the so-called psychedelic renaissance. Well, I'm happy to let our viewers know that you and I are contemplating doing some additional interviews because uh, there's there's much more to to cover. Uh, so much more. I mean, we're just scratching the surface right now. But I, I think another important aspect uh, of this has to do with death and dying. All of these figures you've written about are now gone. And uh, there was a moving passage in your book about Huxley's death. He died on the very same day as John F. Kennedy. I I remember well reading in the paper about Huxley's death the day I learned of Kennedy's death. And uh, I gather that uh, he requested, um, I, I think it was LSD, uh, at the right at the time of his death. Yes, he did. And as people were watching television in the hospital about the JFK assassination, this was going on. He was dying. On, he was on his deathbed, dying of cancer, and he uh, wrote uh, a note, a handwritten note, which survives. <laughs> I actually saw it at the Huxley Archive at UCLA. Uh, he wrote in shaky handwriting, 100 mg micrograms intermuscular and uh, directing, trying to get Laura, his second wife, uh, Laura Huxley, to uh, give him a shot of LSD to go off. And that's what uh, that's what he did. And Laura writes a beautiful long letter describing this. Uh, experience. And uh, it's actually similar to uh, a scene that Huxley wrote in his last novel, Island, where uh, it was more of a utopian idea where, where, where this would be offered to people on, as, as kind of a, a, a way to embrace the next world, whatever that world might be. Um, so yeah, he, that's, he, he certainly did. I'm actually very interested in that aspect of psychedelic use. It, it, it became obvious, I think, to Leary and Alpert and, and Ralph Metzner when they wrote The Psychedelic Experience and based it on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Exactly, which they did at Huxley's suggestion, by the way. It was Huxley who suggested that they read The Tibetan Book of the Dead before they wrote The Psychedelic Experience. And it was... Uh, at, at Taruco College, Gerald Hurd's retreat center, that the author or the discoverer of the so-called Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is, is really a theosophy, modern theosophy text, is my understanding of it. It's not an ancient text, but anyway, uh, that it was at Taruco College through Hurd that Huxley got it. So you can actually see that whole progression there, not to mention the Beatles discovering <laughs> all this through uh, the Psychedelic Experience book. But um, but yeah, the I think... There's a lot of interest around death and dying in psychedelics. Um, uh, 
some of the research that's going on right now is helping people who are have a terminal cancer diagnosis, not to treat the cancer, but to treat the depression and the existential anxiety that can go along with a, a terminal diagnosis. Uh, so using, uh, it's actually psilocybin rather than LSD, but psilocybin uh, with therapy to to work through that. And, you know, a lot of people who, uh, I don't know if you've tripped or want to talk about it, but uh, I have, and uh, and I do talk about it. And uh, it's in some ways, it sort of can seem at times as a, like a dress rehearsal for death. And the experiences you can have uh, mirror what the so-called near-death experiences that people report. And I don't pretend to understand that, <laughs> but it seems to have something to do with ego dissolution uh, and kind of a derealization, in psychological terms, maybe a derealization or depersonalization where your normal egoic, you know, I, me, me, mind, monkey mind finally quiets down and you connect with some bigger sense of self. And... Um, Maybe that's what happens when you die. Who knows? Um, but I have experienced that with, with with psychedelics, which is also a way to uh, actually work with depression, too. Uh, that same dynamic, uh, at least for me, it's been helpful. And I write about that in the last book, too. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting work, I think, to be done with death and dying in psychedelics. I think that's a real going to be real important in the next, you know, 10 years. Well, just for the record, let me say I've used a lot of psychedelics in my life, probably a hundred times or, or, or so, practically all in when I was much younger. But I have to say that, you know, what it did for me is it spurred me on to a, a lifelong study of parapsychology, consciousness, and all of the related areas that I cover on the New Thinking Aloud channel. So for, for myself, I regard it as a very positive experience almost consistently. I think of the more than a hundred psychedelic trips I've had, maybe I had one that, that was bad. And I, I'm under the impression that a lot of it has to do with you know, one's family upbringing and childhood, you're going to confront whatever hidden pain you have. And I was fortunate. I came out of a good, loving family, so I didn't have a lot of that to work through. Yes, yes. I think that's that's very true. That's very true. And it, it's interesting because, you know, the reason I said you may or may not want to talk about it uh, is that a lot of people have been hesitant to talk about it, partly because it was often illegal what they were doing. Uh, and um, and maybe not socially acceptable in some circles, but that's changing, you know. And so a lot of people are, and I think a lot of people of our generation. I mean, maybe you're a little older than I am. I'm not sure, but uh, a, a lot of people of our generation, you know, had very positive experiences, and uh, and maybe they never tripped again, you know. And now they're maybe they're retiring and they're and they're retired and they're open to try it again they don't have the same responsibilities the kids are gone you don't have to worry about who's watching the kids when you're tripping or so all those those issues aren't there and also people are these people are running like you know the government and pharmaceutical companies and universities and so there's i think this whole openness we have seems like all of a sudden to psychedelics because there was such a a crackdown on not just use but research you know for 20 30 years after the 60s that's finally ending um so that it's a very exciting time 
One, one of the points you make in your book, which I think is worth mentioning in passing, is that psychedelics may have had a, a real influence on the growth of the uh, Silicon Valley technology uh, area in the San Francisco Bay Area. People like uh, Steve Jobs said that it was an important uh, tool for him. Um, the guy who invented the mouse, the computer mouse, <laughs> Doug, I think it's Engelbart, uh, he definitely said that it was during a there was a, there were some experiments that were being done uh, uh, in Silicon Valley. They didn't call it Silicon Valley then; it was the peninsula south of San Francisco. Uh, on creativity, uh, LSD and creativity uh, that were being done uh, at the time in the mid '60s, and he was this Engelbarth uh, was part of that, and uh, he credits some insights he had to. Oh, this figuring out the, the computer mouse, which was very important in the uh, you, you know the, that whole second wave of computer personal computers. Um, so yeah, I think it was it played a role, it played a role for sure. <laughs> Uh, you also mentioned in your book that Henry Luce, the publisher of Time Magazine, and his famous wife Claire Booth Luce, uh, were turned on. I think by Gerald Hurd. Hurd, yeah, and that's that's interesting because you you know someone who who you know was in the new in the news media for many years uh there was some very positive reporting by the sort of time life empire you have to remember time life back then was like you know facebook and you know <laughs> zuckerberg are now right it was the very influential uh and uh there were some very positive stories about early psychedelic uh work uh in time and life um and one of the reasons that may have been is that Henry Luce and his wife had been turned on by Gerald Hurd and thought this was a, you know, th this was a very promising tool. A lot of people did then. You have to remember this was in the 1950s, so the whole craziness of the 60s hadn't happened yet. LSD was still legal. Most people hadn't heard of it, and those who had heard of it saw it as, oh, this potentially you know, useful tool that we could use to, you know, uh, for greater insight, uh, understand mental illness, you know, that sort of thing. Well, Don Latin, this has been a fascinating conversation about a, a very important part of uh, our contemporary history, and it's still an ongoing story. So I'm very excited to be with you today. I'm looking forward to our future conversations. Don, thank you so much for being with me. As am I, Jeff. Thanks very much. Yeah, you're right. We did just scratch the surface, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, and for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.